patrons heard this episode first. You can become a patron too by visiting the link in the show notes or heading to patreon.com slash the murder diaries pod. Patrons get early access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and a shout out in an episode. Thank you so much to Haley and Evelinda. We'd also like to give a special thanks to Sandy for buying us a couple coffees on Buy Me a Coffee. Welcome to the Murder Diaries. I'm Natalie. And I'm Paige. In January of 2007, 37-year-old Karen Bodine was found at the entrance of an old gravel quarry in Rochester, Washington, a small town an hour outside of Seattle. A passing motorist discovered Karen's nude body posed in a prone position, with her head resting on a vehicle seat as if it were a pillow. It's been 16 years and we still don't know who killed Karen Bodine. In fact, the Lacey Sheriff's Department isn't any closer to finding the person or persons responsible than they were almost two decades ago. That's because the investigation began with shoddy police work and the media either printed misinformation about who Karen was or refused to cover it altogether. Karen's family hasn't given up hope though. They continue to fight for justice every single day. They believe someone knows something and they're not going to stop until they know who's responsible. Paige and I spoke to Karen's oldest child, Carly, who was just 18 years old when her mother was murdered. She told us all about Karen's life and her unsolved murder. At work, when I'm up on the registers, I have mom's little flyer taped up to each one. And every once in a while, I'll get a comment like, oh, I remember this case. I thought it was solved. I don't know why the flyer's still up. I have to look at the person. That's Actually, my mom, no, it's not solved. And just the look of shock on people's faces, like, oh, I mean, it, it really makes them realize, like, this is a real thing. This is a real person. I'm speaking to the daughter that's here working. Everyone thinks of her as, as a murder victim, and, and that's it. But she was a mother, a daughter, a friend, a coworker. Like, she was this whole person before she was a victim. Her name was Karen Bodine. This is her story. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Karen Lee Bodine was born on March 11th, 1969, in Olympia, Washington, about 60 miles southwest of Seattle. She grew up in Tumwater, a tiny city just north of the state capital with her parents, Sharon and Dave, and her older brother, Greg. The Bodines were a close-knit family, and Karen was a daddy's girl through and through. Her loved ones say she possessed the rare ability to make anyone smile, no matter the circumstance. And her daughter, Carly, believes it had something to do with her distinct laugh, which was more of a cute snort. Everyone knew Karen's laugh. Like, it was... Oh my gosh, I still have it like in my memory to this day. Ah, she would throw her head back and it would just be so loud and just, you couldn't, even if you were in a bad mood, you could not help being in a better mood around her. Karen attended the local high school where she played fast pitch and began setting fashion trends amongst her peers. My mom was definitely like a girly girl, very into fashion and everything. She made her own clothes. She'd go to school and the girls would be like, where did you buy that? And she's like, yeah, I made it actually. Or um, she stole one of my uncle's, her brother's um, like army t-shirts, like the um, camo or whatever. And so she it reported that she was the first girl to wear camo to school, like 
fashionably and it, it caught on. And so other kids started doing it. At the age of 19, Karen gave birth to Carly. She then had two more children, a second daughter named Taylor and a son named Tanner. Karen split from her longtime boyfriend and the father of her children and moved into her parents' home. Sharon and Dave helped look after their grandchildren as the overwhelming challenges of single motherhood began to weigh on Karen, which exacerbated her mental health struggles and substance abuse disorder. Karen was a good mom, but she found herself stuck in the vicious cycle of addiction. Sometimes she used, other times she didn't. Ultimately, she lost custody of the kids. Karen's parents legally adopted Carly, Taylor, and Tanner. They made an agreement with Karen that allowed her to visit, call, or even write letters to the kids whenever she wanted, as long as she was clean. My mom was not perfect, just like every other human being on this planet. Like, just because she wasn't perfect doesn't mean she deserved what happened to her by any means. And I just, I think it's really important to humanize her. Yes, she battled with addiction on and off throughout her life. My grandparents did adopt us. But the thing is with that, my grandparents, like when we weren't actively living with my mom, like in our own apartment or anything, my grandparents made it very clear to her that she was welcome to come see us and call us. And she never missed a sporting event, you know, the home games or the away games that were two or three hours away. There's a lot of parents that just wouldn't go to that. But yet my mom did. Don't get me wrong. It was, it was hard not always living with her, but you know, she, she needed to work on herself so she could be with us. Karen was active in her children's lives as much as she could manage. Whether it was taking Carly to see Harry Potter in the theater or working in Carly's middle school cafeteria, she made the time she spent with her kids special. I can't remember exactly what birthday it was. I know I was pretty young. I want to say like six or seven or something. She couldn't wait till the morning of my birthday. So she woke me up at like 2 or 3 a.m. and we made pancakes because she was just so excited. And that was just so exciting for me. I get to be up and like at nighttime and do this with my mom. Like it was pretty awesome. And now a word from today's sponsor. I've been sleeping on Blissey pillowcases for a couple of years. I literally have 10 of them. And let me tell you, the sleep has been nothing short of blissful. That's because Blissey uses award-winning 100% mulberry silk, which is what's best for your hair and skin. It reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents breakage. It keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin, while cotton literally absorbs it off your face. With Blissey Silk Pillowcases, you can say goodbye to wrinkles, dry, flaky, and red skin in the morning, and wake up with healthier, shinier hair that won't take an hour to fix. Like Natalie said, Blissey Pillowcases are made with 100% mulberry silk, which just so happens to be naturally hypoallergenic, so you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. And unlike other silk pillowcases, these are some of the highest quality silk and are machine washable and durable. Not to mention, it's the perfect gift for any occasion. I've given them to my mom, my sister. I make my husband sleep on one. Everyone I love loves Blissey just as much as I do. Plus, the pillowcases come in gift-ready packaging that they'll be sure to love. Besides all the amazing benefits for skin and hair, one of the things I've enjoyed most about using Blissey is that they regulate temperature, keeping you cool at night. Seriously, the entire pillow, cool to the touch. No more sweaty nights spent tossing and turning around for me. And they're really soft too. 
Everybody loves Blissey and you will too. They have a ton of different prints and colors. And like we said, Blissey makes for a great gift because there's an option for literally everyone. And men love them too. They have over 1 million raving fans and you will be next. Try Blissey now risk-free for 60 nights at blissey.com slash diaries and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash diaries and use code diaries to get an additional 30% off. Your skin and hair and everyone you gift it to will thank you. But with the highs came the lows. Karen would stay away from the kids when she was using or in a manic state. It wasn't easy. She missed them terribly, but had to learn to love them from afar. She suffered from manic depression and bipolar. And you also have to remember that wasn't really a thing back then. I mean, she had it, but not a lot of people acknowledged it or thought it was true. You know, thought she was just attention or or what have you. When we were taken away from her, yes, we were with our grandparents. Yes, we were safe. Yes, she could see us. But she didn't have her kids anymore. Her kids were were everything to her. She, One time, my Aunt Lynn took her shopping because she just needed some new clothes, some new makeup, you know, whatever. She hadn't gotten some new stuff in a while. Aunt Lynn gave her a car. said, go fill it up. I'm going to go shopping over here. We'll meet, you know, later. Mom filled the card up. She met back with my Aunt Lynn. My Aunt Lynn was like, Karen, what are you doing? You've got everything in here for your kids. You don't have anything for you. I mean, that's where her mind was was always at. And unfortunately with her, like she, I don't know if it, it was pride or embarrassment, but when she was suffering um, a manic state, she wouldn't be around us or be around her family. She didn't want us to see her in pain or not. It was a lot more taboo to have those problems back then. And so that that's a really important topic for me. Um if anyone is struggling right now or anything, I I try to make sure I talk about mental health awareness and how that coincides with addiction. And a lot of people didn't correlate that until more recently. The root of the problem actually is usually mental health and addiction is just a symptom of that. Conversation around mental health is invaluable to end the stigma that Carly referenced. The CDC states that one in five Americans will experience a mental illness in a given year. One in 25 Americans lives with a serious mental illness. Karen, of course, was more than her mental health battles. One of my last, like, solid, definite memories I had was my brother's birthday, September 30th. And she is amazing with I mean she could cook in general like anything but like cakes and everything she they looks like professional like oh my gosh and she just naturally could do that she was living out in Lacey with her boyfriend Kevin Hastings I went to a private Christian school not too far down the way and I had my driver's license at the time so I would go and, and see her after school and stuff she had baked a cake and gave it to me to give to my brother I thought that was adorable there was a few times I had seen her since then. I remember stopping by and we were just chatting for a minute. I'd gotten out of my car. She came out of the house. We were just in the driveway, like chatting. But I had just meant to like see her, say hi and bye. And she was like, stay five more minutes, stay five more minutes. 
I was like, next time, mom, next time. You know, I'm, I'm a busy high schooler. I've got a million things to do. That's really important. I didn't realize that was the last time I would have, I would exchange that last five minutes for anything in the world, right? As Carly mentioned, Karen was living with a boyfriend named Kevin Hastings at the time of her death. It was a toxic relationship, which came to a head on Friday, January 19th, 2007. There was a domestic violence situation, resulting in Karen having to leave the home she shared with Kevin and being served an order of protection. She didn't seek refuge with her parents. Instead, Karen decided to find another place to stay, the home of a man named Jim Hunt. My mom was found Monday morning murdered in a ditch on the side of the road. That Friday, there was an altercation at the home of her boyfriend. There was a domestic dispute. And the laws in Washington are, if the police get called to a domestic violence situation at a home, one of the persons needs to be removed. It's it's a safety issue. It's That's just how they operate. That's standard procedure. When they arrived, my mom was a little more emotional and upset. So she was the more vocal or or loud one. And I want to make it clear that there was no physical altercation between either of them. He wasn't hitting her. She wasn't hitting him. It was just a very heated argument. I mean, things probably would have escalated to further violence if the cops were not uh, called and they intervened. So with procedure with that, and especially because she was not the owner of the home or anything, um, she was asked to leave and there was a a restraining order, but that's very common. That's totally normal. It is just to make sure that the two parties do not communicate until court when we can just resolve everything. And so that happened. And so she figured, now you got to remember too, like, in her mid-30s, she just got in a fight with her boyfriend. How embarrassing would it be to call your parents? At least that's like how I, I feel, you know. So she also knew she had a mutual friend right down the street. Yes, it was technically Kevin's friend because they were in a band together. But at the same time, like she had gotten to know him and the other people around the house too. So she figured, hey, I'll just walk down there, let everything cool off until everything gets figured out and then I'll and that's how she ended up at Jim. It's clear this exacerbated the hardships Karen was already experiencing. So she already suffered from some mental illness that she was not getting the proper treatment or care for. And then after the episode with the boyfriend and having to leave and the house she chose, unfortunately, was not a good choice. It was not a stable environment. She kind of had like a mental breakdown, which happened you know she she was dealing with a lot she had a lot on her shoulders this is the part of the timeline where things get harder to piece together the articles about karen's death are vague at best and the people who were there aren't talking we know the basics karen's been removed from her home and she's in crisis when she arrives at jim's house she stays there until sunday january 21st when she and jim are involved in what news reports call an altercation This leaves so much to interpretation, so we asked Carly to clarify. I don't know know, everything. If I knew everything, the case would be solved by now. But what I do know is that um, she was upset, and she wanted to go take a bath and, like, calm down. I That's that's kind of what 
all of us Bodhian women do, I guess. Like my grandma's taking a bath since I could remember. So does my mom. Like I, I do. <laughs> when I'm stressed out, I'll grab some candles and hide in the bathroom for two hours. Like it just ah, makes me feel better. So um she wanted to go take a bath. And so she proceeded to do that. The thing is, Jim's house was Flop house, like a, a druggy house. There was, he was in a band. He, um, has a known record of use and drug distribution. So there was a lot of activity. There was a lot of people coming and going. And it's a one bathroom house. And so you had other people there wanting to use the restroom for whatever reason they had to. My mom was like, hold on, you know, I'm not done. Give me time. Other people would bang on the door. I need in. And at one point, um, him, the owner of the home, forcefully opened the door, like, and, and got her out in a, not a nice manner. After Jim forces Karen out of the bathroom, she leaves the home. The next time she's seen is when a good Samaritan calls the Lacey Sheriff's Department. The woman reports that Karen's walking alongside the road without a winter coat. It's a cold, icy day in January, and she worries Karen may need help. An officer arrives and speaks with Karen. She refuses any aid, saying she's on her way home to Rochester. There isn't much the officer can do, so he heads out. Leaving Karen, a woman in crisis, without a jacket and any means of transportation. Yes, there was, she was walking down the street, and there's... It's called Panorama City. It's um, two blocks of homes and it's like assisted living. It's like where older people live. And, you know, not a lot of old people sometimes. They're they're boring. They have nothing to do. They look out their windows. And so this dear woman saw my mom walking down the street in, um, in January here. It's very, very cold. It's colder than like December and stuff. We usually get snow around more uh, January, February. So it was definitely freezing my mother was walking in inappropriate clothing not like anything scandalous but like it wasn't warm enough like she didn't have a big jacket she just had like a pair of slacks a t-shirt and like a a thin windbreaker on and for that um that type of outfit in the weather here would be not okay like freezing like there you you're out there long enough you would get hypothermia and so this lady was was worried and called the police. And so an officer did do a welfare check. He called my grandma once. She didn't answer. And and that was it. No ride was offered. No mention of a shelter or anything. The cop said, hey, I checked on you. You're not hurting yourself. You're not hurting anyone else. We're fine. That's my job. I'm done. And I mean, yeah, I guess yeah, he, he did his job. But at the same time, like, this is obviously a woman that needed some type of help. What? I guess it wasn't common to mention shelters or anything. That, like, again, like, it was, oh, she's just a druggie. Nobody cares. Kind of mentality. And that hurts so bad to have to realize that's reality. Karen eventually returns to Jim's house. It's not clear what time she arrived or how long she stayed. However, we do know the authorities were called once again. Information about this second encounter with the Lacey Sheriff's Department was difficult to find. In fact, it was almost impossible. 
None of the resources reported on it, but we knew something happened because Carly briefly mentioned it in another interview a few years back. So we asked her to tell us about it. Then um, she made it back to the home and supposedly either later that day or the next day, supposedly Jim Hunt and another person at the residence, I guess we're getting sick of mom being there. And instead of being adults and saying, hey, can you leave? They called the cops saying that there was like a warrant out on my mom or, or something. They they lied to get the cops over there. So the cop came, I guess. And my mom was like, okay, fine, whatever, I'll, I'll leave. So she left for a while and then came back later. I mean, she had nowhere else to go. Her things were still there. It is really sad that... The police had more than one opportunity to realize that this was a woman in crisis and to step in. And unfortunately, they did not. That is, that is pretty heartbreaking. Hopefully, they have learned lessons since this case and others. And hopefully, they are more active in seeking help for individuals that are in crisis. It's now 3 a.m. on Monday, January 22nd the last verifiable time Karen was seen alive. She's with a group of friends at Jim's house. Reports indicate many were using drugs, although it's unclear if Karen was in fact using them at this point. Almost six hours later, Karen's body is seen from Little Rock Road southwest and reported to authorities. She's near the entrance of an old gravel quarry in Thurston County, an area typically used as an illegal dump site. It's also the location frequented by hunters for deer and duck. The caller originally thought Karen was a mannequin because she was nude and posed in a prone position, meaning she was on her back with a ligature still around her neck. Her belongings were nowhere to be found and her head was propped up on a discarded vehicle seat. Investigators arrived on scene and cordoned off the area. It was clear from the start that it was a brutal attack and that whomever did this wanted her to be found. She was found naked on the side of the road, her head resting against a car seat. First of all, I want to make sure people know it wasn't like a baby car seat. That's what a lot of people think of. Um, It was like the back seat of a car, like the whole seat. They don't know if it's the car she was transported in. They don't know if it was trash that was already there and they just used it because they never collected it as evidence. It's horrific, it's disgusting, but he said, like, maybe they'll step up their game and actually do their jobs and collect evidence next time because what's mm, we would be a lot closer if they just cared and did their job originally. Investigators believe Karen was killed elsewhere, driven to the specific location, and staged. An autopsy revealed strangulation as the cause of death, and the Emmy found no signs of sexual assault on her body. They did, however, recover DNA, a mixture of multiple contributors. The science at the time couldn't isolate the DNA samples. However, forensic experts were somehow able to rule out Jim Hunt as a match. Perhaps the most puzzling aspect of the crime scene is the ligature found around Karen's neck. Detective Mickey Hamilton, who unofficially worked the investigation after it became a cold case, questions why the killer or killers left it behind saying, I think it's unusual in the fact that everything else was removed from her body. 
Another question surrounding the case is the ownership of a small brown 1980s Datsun seen in the exact location at 7.50 a.m., less than an hour before Karen's body was discovered. In total, four witnesses have come forward and placed the vehicle at the scene. Two of the witnesses described the vehicle as an 80s model Datsun or Toyota truck, while the other two witnesses describe it as a Datsun or Toyota sedan. Only one witness says the vehicle had a cream-colored camper attached, while the other witnesses don't recall a camper. However, all of them agree. The vehicle was a unique shade of brown. Karen's case faced problems early on. The original investigator, Steve Hamilton, was nearing his retirement, which could explain a major oversight. As Carly mentioned earlier, the vehicle seat Karen's head was propped up on was never collected as evidence or even tested for DNA. It's long gone now in a landfill somewhere, along with any forensic evidence that may have been on it. News reports also presented Karen as a homeless sex worker. Carly and the rest of the Bodine family believe this false representation of her mother adversely affected the amount of media attention the case received, in addition to limiting the energy and resources detectives put into the investigation. And the other thing is, too, fortunately, when, when she did die and all this happened, she was, it was quoted that it was a homeless prostitute that was found. I know I'm not trying to speak ill of anyone in that situation, but my mother was never homeless. She was never a prostitute. Um, and unfortunately, because that was said very early on, it had a major impact on her case and, you know, working on it in general. Um, that's a really, really sad view. Karen's murder got so little attention that even those investigating forgot about it. Probably about 10 years ago now, I was driving home and I'd gotten pulled over for something minor and stupid. I can't even remember. It was like no seatbelt or texting and driving or, or something like that. And the police officer pulled me over, asked for my license and registration, yada, yada, yada. I hand it to him. He looks at it. Odin, Odin, where have I arrested you before? And I look up at him and his badge says Semper or Center. That was a detective on my mom's case for a very short time, which by the way, he never reached out to the family. He never returned my phone calls. Um, when I realized like who it was, I said, Center, Center, you were the one working on my mom's case. Karen Bodine, you know, the one that was murdered. And then when he realized that I'm Carly Bodine, that's why he remembered Bodine was from the murder case, not from arresting me. He was like, have have a good day. I'm going to let you go this time. You're going to let me go because you didn't realize my mom was your old case? With only circumstantial evidence, no arrests were ever made. Leads eventually stopped coming in and the case quickly turned cold. The lack of media coverage led many locals to incorrectly assume Karen's murder had been solved, which couldn't be further from the truth. The reason I think people think it's solved because we had the initial article originally and then nothing after that. And so if, if it's not refreshed in the general public's mind, then in their idea like, oh, it must be solved, they're not talking about it. And I think that's unfortunately what happened. Thurston County is not very big, but there's over 21 unsolved homicides and missing persons 
And Thurston County alone, that's really disgusting. Now, part of that, though, is because a lot of the community is very rural. A lot of it is a lot of farmland or woods or what have you. But, yeah, 21. I want to make it clear, too, there's no... We don't have a cold case unit or anything. Like, they don't work on cold cases. They do it when they have time. Unfortunately, I've been told from certain law enforcement people that unless you privately advocate for your own case, it will probably never be solved. Carly has spent the last 16 years doing what it takes to remind the 300,000 people living in the Thurston County that her mother's murder remains unsolved. She was my mom, but we were also like best friends. Like I was her first child. We were, she was young when she had me. We were very close. I, she would fight tooth and nail for me. There's no reason I wouldn't, you know, do the same for her. All of my extra money goes to printing flyers and getting stickers and saving money for another billboard and things like that. And then a few of it goes to my dog for dog toys. But besides that, like everything is for my mom. Like, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I can find no other better way to spend my money, but it, it's really sad that we really get no help. There's been no official flyer from the Thurston County Sheriff's Office or anything ever. And then when I got the billboards up a few years ago, which I did that with my own money and with donations, like it cost a pretty penny, definitely. I got a lot more uh, feedback. A lot more people were aware of the case. But then when it had to come down, I also had some people yelling at me like, you should keep that up. Trust me, I want to. I'm just not rich. A little tidbit, kind of a cool thing. I didn't realize this till we were getting the billboard put up. The guy that was putting it up, he didn't know what he was doing. He just, he works for the billboard company. He just grabs the billboard for the day and puts it up. He had started putting it up and it hit him. He went to school with my mom. And so it was really near and dear to him. And so when we took it down, I actually have a video of him taking it down and everything too. But like, I mean, that, that I guess kind of shows what a small community Tumwater or Olympia really is yes it's grown since then but like it was quite a small town especially when my mom was younger the case folder sat on a shelf and collected dust for years that all changed when detective mickey hamilton not to be confused with the original detective steve hamilton became involved he learned about karen's murder when he was new on patrol his patrol area included the dump site where karen's body was found and he frequently drove past it By the time he became a detective, he knew he wanted to uncover answers for the Bodine family. Detective Mickey Hamilton isn't a cold case detective and has never been officially assigned Karen's case. But that hasn't stopped him from investing hundreds of hours of his own time to help get justice for Karen and the Bodine family. Now there's two Hamilton. Steve Hamilton, the original one. All we're going to say about him. There's also Mickey Hamilton, (laughs) and he is amazing. From the bottom of my heart, I could not find a better police officer ever, not just for my case, for everything he works on. He actually, first of all, he actually does his job. And secondly, it actually means something to him. And so he takes his own personal time 
to work on these cases. In October 2019, 12 years after Karen's murder, Detective Mickey Hamilton submitted Karen's case to CrowdSolve. It's a true crime festival that partners with local law enforcement offices to give citizen sleuths a chance to view cold cases with the goal of solving them. The event breathed new life into Karen's murder investigation. The local media lost complete interest. Like, I would call once a week asking them to do a different story, a different angle, you know, anything. And the thing is, is they they would ignore me. They would tell me, no, there's no reason. And what's really frustrating is right after they found out I was going to do CrimeCon, they called me and wanted to do an interview. So it's like, oh, well, now you want to. And I I gave them a piece of my mind. It wasn't exactly um, the most polite thing. We're just going <laughs> to leave it at that. And then I told them, get to my house in 15 minutes or you will not have an interview. They needed to understand. I was very upset. I've been trying to do this for years. And they, so, yes. And, and again, what's really sad recently too is the Chronicle, which is the Lewis County newspaper, still works with me. They still do, um, articles. I've had some in Portland, even in Seattle. The Olympian still refuses to do anything. I call once a week still. The great thing about CrowdSolve is, yes, it got regained awareness. It showed a lot of people like, hey, this actually isn't solved like I thought. Like, this is still going. It just brought a lot of renewed attention. There weren't a ton of hard leads that came from it. But at the same time, it was still very beneficial because it made people realize that this wasn't solved. This still is happening. Like there's a family suffering at the time. I think it was 14 years. So it did a lot to regenerate interest in the case. With the spotlight now on Karen's case, there was a push for additional testing of the mixed DNA sample found at Karen's crime scene. Forensic science has advanced a great deal in the years since the evidence was last analyzed. And there's a possibility it could lead investigators to the killer or killers. So when CrowdSolve offered to pay for the testing to be done, the Bodine family was ecstatic until the sheriff's office refused. According to Detective Hamilton, the sheriff's office, quote, declined to accept any monetary contribution because they don't want to put any kind of priority on somebody just because they have the ability to pay for it. All of the DNA has been tested, but where we're at right now is there's a a mix of DNA. We know there's some different contributors, but we haven't broken it down beyond that. Like we need to break it down more. There needs to be more testing to know who's it, who's it was. We know there's five to eight people or whatever that are in the sample, but we have no idea who, who they are. The sheriff flat out said no, which was Snaza at the time. But no, we don't need to. Um, here's the thing though, too, is that he said it would have shown special treatment. So first of all, you didn't even treat my mom's case correctly in the first place. Now that we have a chance to actually do things properly, you're saying no. And I don't understand how it would be special treatment or, or getting hers expedited. Cause here's the thing is there's a huge line and backlog for lots of them. If mine got done, that would automatically push the next one forward and the next one forward. It would be a domino effect of getting all of these cases solved faster, not just one. So there was no way it would be preferential treatment at all. 
And that's where things are right now. The sheriff's department has turned Karen's murder investigation into a waiting game. Meanwhile, Carly isn't giving up. She knows the power of the true crime community and hopes by sharing her mother's story that someone out there will come forward with new information. My mom and I would always watch Cops or America's Most Wanted. Those were the most popular ones. But we always watched true crime shows. My mom and I kind of like that, you know. It's a big reality check to realize that I've been on those shows now talking about my mom. It's, you know, a full circle. We used to watch it, and now here I am advocating for her. It was obviously entertainment for my mom and me. Um, I'm a horrible singer, but I still have the memory of her saying, bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? <laughs> um, but, but after her death, that's the thing. When you watch those shows, don't get me wrong, your heart goes out to those people, but you're secure. You're in your own home watching this TV. You think that's never going to happen to me. And, and then it did. And so I, uh, yeah, part of me sort of enjoys those shows, but I, I hurt for the people on there too. Now I, I understand their pain and the reason for going on those shows is to get awareness and answers and everything. Um, it's a lot more clear now. Yeah. A part of the importance of doing this is before CrimeCon happened, there was quite a few years where I wouldn't really talk about my mom because I didn't know how. I mean, I, I would still mention it and everyone around me knew, but it was, it was so hard to just even talk about it because people are like, really? That happened so long ago or they wouldn't believe me like really that and I, I also thought like there's no way anyone would listen to me there's no way I could get a billboard or anything like that and then I sat there one day like why not no one else is doing anything I, I will we'd like to thank Carly for speaking with us for today's episode anyone with information on the case is urged to contact Detective Mickey Hamilton at 360-786- 5279. If you'd like to contribute to Carly's search for answers and closure, she'll tell you what to do right here. Justice for Karen Bodine, my mother's unsolved homicide, is her Facebook page. Just message me on there and you can get mugs, t-shirts, sweatshirts, stickers, pretty much just about anything. Make sure to follow us on all of our socials at the Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram and at the Murder Diaries podcast request at gmail.com. Until then, stay safe. Bye. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.